Hello and welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast brought to you by Discipleship.org. I'm your host, Dave Stovall. Today's episode, we had the privilege of catching up with Bill Hall, the co-founder of Bonhoeffer Project. And let me tell you, he is in full Bill Hall mode on this episode, and I love every minute of it. He talked to us about the gospel that a lot of us in North America were one to, the mental ascent gospel where you believe a list about Jesus versus a real gospel that calls us to lay down our lives to follow Jesus. There's some brilliant stuff in here and also some great advice on what to call people to as we begin discipling them. Let's check it out. Let's hear from Bill Hall and the Bonhoeffer Project team. Here we go. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Bonhoeffer Project, our first breakout. My name is Jim Thomas. I am on the national leadership team. I'm the director of Bonhoeffer Press, which is our printing uh, publication arm of the Bonhoeffer Project. Let me tell you real quick our vision, the Bonhoeffer Project, okay? We're not Lutheran necessarily. We're not neo-Orthodox necessarily. Uh, We've taken Bonhoeffer's name because of his passion for making disciples. Uh, in small communities, and that's what we do. Our passion is this, oral revolution through local movements of disciple-making. And we do that by turning leaders into disciple-makers, okay? So we are a leadership ministry that helps to turn leaders into effective disciple-makers in their ministry context. So there's our vision and our mission, and I wanted to hit that up front. We're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of what we do at the end of this session, okay? So we'll let you know kind of how it's all set up, what we do, but in the middle of those two things, our vision and mission and the nuts and bolts, we uh, have a friend of ours who started the Bonhoeffer Project, Woo-hoo! Mr. Bill Hull. Can we welcome Bill? Bill's going to do our first session. Uh, he is from California, uh, Long Beach, and uh, Bill is a co-founder of the Bonhoeffer Project, author of many of our books, and uh, he's going to talk about uh, this idea of the intentional gospel today. So one more time, welcome Bill Hull. Thank you, Jim. We don't have amplification, so I'll have to use what God gave me. It does my heart a lot of good to be with you, because quite a few years ago, I woke up in the middle of the night, I sat up in bed, and I said, that's it. Uh, And it was simply to get a group of people around a table, and somehow I, I wanted, I had just this push in me to teach what I know, to, to convince everybody that the gospel you believe in determines the disciple you make. And that the reason that our discipleship was ineffective or less than really the design was because we have, we decided that the gospel we believe in is compromised. That we have preached a non-discipleship gospel. That when you separate something, and this is what the book Conversion and Discipleship is about, when you take salvation, this grand concept, and this true reality of God, the whole purpose of history, and you slice it down the middle, and you separate it, it has the same effect as when a family separates, when a marriage breaks up, when something is meant to be together and it's torn apart, it's less than it should be. And so the salvation itself and its full-bodied impact and transformation in our lives is gone. You know, it's, it's diluted. And so it makes discipleship optional. And if discipleship is optional, most of us, particularly in the West, in America, will take the path of least resistance. We will do it that way. And so it was with that kind of basic idea that I started. And listen, uh, I had a manuscript of the book, Conversion and Discipleship. Uh, The co-founder, Brandon Cook, and I, He was a 32- or 31-year-old pastor at the time, and we just started working on it, and we would have a notebook, and we found seven pastors in the community of Long Beach, in which we live, who were willing to give it a try. 
We didn't even know, you know, we didn't know month one what we were going to do in month two, except that we were going to follow the outline of the book. And so we wrote it as we went along, and we experienced things with this group of individuals. And because, now here's what makes it work. A lot of our Bible studies and our groups and churches and going to church itself and worshiping together, the one thing that is not, uh, that causes it to become academic or irrelevant or uh, that we audit it is that we're not, we're just going to church together, we're just going to meetings together, we're just studying together, but we're not really doing anything together. And, and when you start doing things together, when you get into the mission, then that becomes the catalyst, that becomes the energy, that's what brings it alive. That's when you plug in the TV set, it actually comes on, because the power is there. And so I wanted to be, I wasn't interested in just holding a Bible study and sharing with people everything I knew about the Bible. I wanted to actually work with people who were working with people because I wanted to work with the gatekeepers, with the distributors. In other words, when you go out and work with somebody, uh, what we're looking at is you're interested in retail in the church. In the local church, you have the people who come in. Those are the people that are the customers, so to speak. And you, the retail ministry is meeting people's needs and the transformation in their lives every day where they live, work, and play. That's what the whole idea of it is. But back at headquarters, so to speak, you have the distributors or the leaders who are making the policies, who are developing the doctrine, who are deciding what's going to be taught and what kind of groups are going to be done and what kind of staff is going to be employed to do the work. And so then, so that's where we have chosen to work in the Bonhoeffer Project, is with leaders. We turn leaders into disciple makers. And we teach that everybody who's called to salvation is called to discipleship, no exceptions, and no excuses. Now, if you don't think that's radical, just try it. <laughs> so what I want to do today, and I can't do everything, obviously, and uh, they wanted me to do this session today because there's no guarantee that in the future I'll remember any of this. So we, <laughs> so it's a good thing it's being recorded. All right. <clears throat> now, the gospel, uh, let me tell you a story. And I draw it up here, but I'm afraid that I can't, with the angles and everything, it really wouldn't be that helpful. <clears throat> All right. Most of the conversations you're going to hear, even at a conference like this or Exponential or any other conference you go to, 98% of the conversation about disciple making is always going to start at sometimes what is a disciple. Even sometimes people skip that of defining a disciple clearly. And so we get find ourselves in our churches, you know, it's here you are in church and you we have an assignment in the Bonhoeffer Project. One of the first assignments is define a disciple. And so you go back and there's like three or four people and you say, okay, let's define a disciple. Three hours later, they have failed. <laughs> so they call an extra meeting. Uh, and then they spend three or four more hours on it. And again, we've failed. It's a very difficult thing because, but essentially if you were you know, selling shoes, and you say, well, what kind of shoes do you make here? And you say, well, you know, everybody's got their own idea of what the shoes look like. Look at these people down there on the floor, you know, the manufacturing floor. And some of them are making uh, shoes that are, you know, they're brown and they're kind of funky. And then this group over here, they have a, they like different colors. And they, and it, so you see everybody's making a different kind of shoe. And that's, that's sort of like a church, you know, it has all these Bible studies, and everybody chooses their own curriculum, and everybody kind of does it their way, because, you know, it makes us all feel good about ourselves. And so we do all that kind of stuff, and then you don't even, you don't even know what you're doing, I mean, frankly. Uh, and you don't know what you're producing. And uh, the speaker, uh, the speakers in the first session, uh, I, I wasn't familiar with the lady who spoke, but she did a fantastic job, boy. I mean, she delivered it so well too. And uh, so, and uh, she she said it so well about you know so the the things that we're up against in our culture. 
And so you have to, you know, are we we're developing disciples that are able to engage in life and engage the culture in a way that's going to be satisfactory, that's going to make a difference. And so we have to know, are we equipping, when it says equip the saints for the work of ministry, are we equipping people properly? Or are we doing the job that we're called to do? Are we teaching people to be passive and to be shut up and to be afraid and to be fearful? So those are all important questions. Uh, and so, and uh, so when we talk about what kind of you know disciple uh, precision or specificity is our friend, ambiguity is our enemy. Specificity is our friend. Ambiguity is our enemy. Now you have that. Then you have also, uh, you have people talk about the program and the models. And you'll get a lot of that here too, about models and ideas and curriculums. We sell curriculums. Uh, so it's, it's all useful, it's all tools, but it's, lot, it's much more important what your gospel is. Because your gospel that you believe in determines the disciple you make, which guides the actual how-to of how you get there done. And that, that's in our literature and, our, and things like that. But I just wanted to make clear that, that you, above the, the, the thing that really drives it all is the gospel. And that's why we're going to talk about it right now. Okay. Now, there are many gospels in the United States and the West that are taught. And these are taught all over the world. Because what we export uh, is adopted by the world. Uh, primarily, be I think primarily because of the influence and the power and the money that we have. And so we've exported our Christianity, and it's not always been a good thing. But we start off with the forgiveness-only gospel. This is the most popular gospel used. Uh, this is the one uh, where... It's about being forgiven and what it creates. And this is the thing you have to always ask yourself. What does the gospel we believe in naturally lead to? And what it naturally leads to is people who feel that the it's all about forgiveness of sins. Now, forgiveness of sins is essential, but it can't just be about that. And what it is, it's like a transaction. And so I got, I made a transaction I answered these questions, I went through the ritual, I signed off on the idea, and then as a result, I've become a Christian. And that's the most important thing. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is not as important. Everything else is optional. And so here's what it says, is that what it creates is following Christ is optional, and it's sanctified passivity. Uh, our, my, uh, the late Dallas Willard, he used to say that we've not only been saved by grace, we've been paralyzed by it. <laughs> uh, and the idea that we, that grace becomes this uh, passive force, and we become passive in our faith. The second one, is the gospel of the left, and I used to not really spend much time on this, and my temptation now is to spend too much time on it. But the gospel of the left, now I'm talking about theologically, I'm talking about progressive thought, essentially. And like our speaker earlier today, she was talking about progressive thought <coughs> and progressive ideology. But anyway, it, it, the theological left has been around a very long time. Uh, in the United States, you know, Bonhoeffer himself was not an evangelical like we think. He was more neo-Orthodox. But when he came to New York City in 1930, and he was a student there for a year, he already had his PhD, but he was studying at Union Theological Seminary, which essentially is ground zero uh, of uh, American theological liberalism and a progressive thought. And he, he didn't think it, he, he thought, he said that Americans develop their own theology sort of like somebody uh, goes to a cafeteria and just says, I'll take that, and I'll take that, and I'll take that, or they buy a car, 
They say, I, I like this feature, I like that feature, but they didn't take the whole thing. And he didn't respect it because he didn't think they had any good theology, and he was right. Uh, so the old left, that's basically uh, Jesus didn't Jesus didn't walk on water, but there were actually uh, stones beneath the water. And so when he walked on the water, it just appeared that he was walking on the water, but actually he was walking on these stones. That was the idea that you could demythologize the gospel by saying those things didn't happen that way, or these texts are been added in later. You know that you, you've heard all of this kind of thing. But the gospel, the new left, is the one that, you know, when I first started talking about this, we were talking about the emergent church, and it emerged and then went away because they came up with a lot of questions with no answers. But then the issue with this is now is just the very things that we were talked about today in the session, opening session. So I'm not going to go into that. It, that's essentially, though, what uh, we are, the new and it used to be, I said, you know, we don't really have too much of this in our churches, but actually we do now. Yes. And it's it's quite pervasive, quite powerful. It's everywhere. It divides people. And you have to speak up or shut up. And I liked what uh, our speaker said, you, you have to be willing to suffer. And if you don't ever speak up, nobody slanders you, nobody accuses you of anything, nobody uh, gets on your case, then how would you know how to love people and uh, do the things that Jesus said, lest those who persecute you? So we had the gospel of the left didn't used to be an issue for us in the Bonhoeffer Project with the, the, the clientele we have, but now it is. It's, it's a big deal, and it's growing. And with the death of common sense, oh well, I can I could go on, but I won't. Okay. Uh, next is the prosperity gospel. Well, I'm, I'm a graduate of Old Roberts University. Back in 1969, the Earth had just cooled, and and I and I, I saw a chart. I read a book a few years ago, and in this chart, this person drew this uh, historian drew a. Uh, like a chart, a kind of a web effect of where the prosperity gospel started. And it had all these people on the outside uh, that you, you know, we could all name. A lot of them are on television and uh, that, that were part of the prosperity gospel. And then it went back down to the Mecca, the origin, ground zero. Oral Roberts University, 1969. I was there. <laughs> My wife, Jane, in the back row, she was the homecoming queen. <laughs> I was the captain of the basketball team. Oral and I used to shoot baskets together. I always had to let him make them. <laughs> so I was right there. I didn't know it. I didn't know enough to know where I was and who this person was in the whole world. I didn't really know. I was a brand new Christian. So we could uh, go on, but the prosperity gospel means you know, claim your rights, entitlement. It's basically God management. God owes me a good life. And I'm going to hold you to it, God. You owe this to me. I'm not talking about the charismatic movement now because there's a lot of good in the charismatic movement. But what I'm say I am saying is that uh, there's a prosperity wing. And it's not just in charismatics. It's now, a lot of these things, they, uh, I, was gonna, I guess I'll use the word, spill over into each other. And to where you have sort of this really awful gospel stew. Uh, I call it the gospel Americana, where it's, it's typically American. We, we take what we like out of each one. You know, it's kind of cool. Uh, I don't want to might think my neighbor's going to hell because hell's not a really a place and all that. And so I like that from the progressives. Uh, I like the idea of you just make a decision and you're good to go. You got your, uh, your entry card into heaven. I like that. I like the prosperity thing that God doesn't want me to be sick. And God, I'm sick. So in Jesus' name, I speak this truth into reality. These kinds of things that people, you know, we like to mix together. And then... 
The consumer gospel. Oh, yes, we're all familiar with this one. Meet your needs. You know, what? what's in it for me? Uh, pastor, you're not feeding me. You know, I've been told that. Uh, if you've been a pastor, I was a pastor for a, quite a long time, and then once in a while somebody would come up to me and say, well, pastor, uh, I, you're not feeding me. And I, one time, I don't know, something just happened, a, a fan belt snapped in my brain, you know, one of those kind of deals. And I, I said to this person, well, what time are you having dinner tonight? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, what time? And they said, well, about 6.30. I said, I'll be there. And, uh, and she said, why? Well, I said, I'm going to come over there and teach you how to eat. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, and she said, well, I don't need you to come over. What are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, the reason you don't have me come over and teach you how to eat is you taught yourself or somebody taught you and now you can feed yourself. And I said, my job as a pastor is not to feed you. It's to teach you to feed yourself. Now yeah, she didn't come back. <laughs> All right. But you know, I, you know, it's all this stuff about, remember, I used to get, we used to get together like four or five pastors in our community. We'd get together once a month for lunch, and then we'd, sometimes we'd play golf together and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, and people would always, enter, you know, move around between our churches. And somebody would go, well, I'm going over to his church now, you know, that kind of thing. And I said, you know, I think we ought to just put our budgets together and buy a big bus. And we'll put all these bad, these people on a bus. And then every week we'll just let them go to each church. And, okay, this is the uh, Cottonwood uh, Church. It's really big. The pastor's preaching on this today. If, uh, get off now. we got like 10 seconds to get off. <laughs> That's those people. Okay. <laughs> But more seriously, addiction to desire. Yeah, addiction to desire. Uh, learning the difference between when it says that God is at work to will and to work for his good pleasure. He wills things in us. And so he puts good desires in us, and we kind of inherently know which are good desires and which one are not good desires. Uh, then we have the gospel of the right. And, of course, this is the one we all have because we're right, correct? <laughs> Uh, it's, a, it's the gospel of the right is uh, what it creates is theological swagger. Uh, I remember once I was invited to a school out uh, remain nameless, and uh, I was uh, asked to speak at the chapel service, and so I walk in, and I'm I think I'm among friends, you know, among fellow Christians. And then this person got up, the host, and introduced me. He said, well, it's good to have Bill Hall here today. Uh, somebody from outside uh, our understanding and, uh, you know, a person who, who is, uh, disagrees with us and we're sure that someday he'll come around, but we're so glad to have him here today. I said, wow. Uh, <laughs> you know, have you ever had somebody say, well, you just haven't thought it through? Uh, so there's an element in, uh, you know, uh, I love what Dallas Willard said about this. He says, you know, it's a horrible burden in life to always be right. <laughs> Just think about that. You always have to be right. And that makes you a, a kind of a difficult person, always having to be correct. Lacks a little, you know, we lack a little humility when it's like that. Yeah. All right. So we have the gospel, the forgiveness only, the gospel of the left, old and new, the prosperity gospel, the consumer gospel, the gospel of the right. Okay, that, that's gospel Americana right there. Now the right answer on the test is the gospel of the kingdom. And, uh, you know, we could spend, I mean, how many of us have read big, thick books about the kingdom of God? Pretty much everybody who was forced to do that, uh, I would recommend uh, the biggest ones because they're good at for doorstops. <laughs> but essentially, the, the kingdom of God, I think, is where, where God's will is being done. Some people think the kingdom of God is a church. 
I would essentially say the church is part of the kingdom of God, but I think it's broader than that. And that the gospel of the kingdom is what essentially we call the discipleship gospel. And we have the red book, which is conversion and discipleship. But if you want a faster read, and most people do, then we have the blue book, the, the discipleship gospel. And in that discipleship gospel, it gets down into essentially what this discipleship gospel is, and we call it, it's, but it's essentially the gospel of the kingdom. Now, uh, one of the things that I want to read to you is a quote from, again, Dallas Willard. I, I apologize, Dallas. Uh, he's with God now. I love five minutes of his time. I could, you know, save myself a lot of trouble if I just knew what he knows right now. But it says, this is Willard. As a proclaimer and teacher of the gospel of his kingdom, I do not cease to announce a gospel about Jesus. So just think about that. A gospel about Jesus. Now, what's he mean by that? The gospel about Jesus is basically the gospel declaration in the blue book. But it is born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, crucified, dead and buried, raised, appeared, ascended, return. That's the gospel about Jesus. Why was it the gospel about Jesus? Well, it was because essentially it all, this is all about what happened to him described by somebody else. So it's a gospel about Jesus. So that we don't, we don't argue, you know, we're not trying to fiddle with this when we talk about the gospel. You know, we're not, we're not fixing to fix, you know, as I say around here, we're, not, we're, we're fixing, I heard that last night, we're fixing to do, we're not fixing to do anything <laughs> damaging there, okay? Now, uh, let's go on. He says, that remains forever foundational. Yes, it does, okay. But I also recognize the need and the opportunity to announce the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus. It's this gospel of Jesus and how it integrates with the gospel about Jesus that really is where we are doing the struggle. And uh, a few years ago, uh, a guy from Moody Press came to this conference and he contacted me afterwards. He says, he says, I went to all the seminars, I went to all the groups over a couple of year period, and he says, I went to Exponential and all those things, and I, I studied it, and I surveyed it, and he says, you guys and the Bonhoeffer Project stand alone. And I said, I wasn't sure what he's going to say. <laughs> he says that you guys are the only ones that really deal with the gospel. The real issue. Because, let me go on, I'll tell you what's an issue. But I recognize, Willard says, the need and opportunity to announce the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the present availability of every human being of a life in the kingdom among us. Without that, in other words, without combining them and integrating them, the gospel about Jesus remains destructively incomplete. Destructively incomplete. So that what we endeavored to do, Ben Sobels, who is the co-author of the blue book on the discipleship gospel, we were in St. Louis and we'd been doing, we'd been working for two days and leading a cohort. And uh, after, and we were sitting out there waiting for somebody to pick us up for dinner. It was a warm summer night. And I said, Ben, I think maybe we, we're always talking about what we don't like. Maybe we should define what we do like. And that's the birth of that book. Now, the gospel declaration, that's the gospel about Jesus. Then we call it in the book, gospel response. But this is, this is essentially what Jesus was teaching in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. What did he teach? Well, first of all, repent of your sins. So the first thing is, the, the first word of the gospel in a way is repent. Turn around. And 
You know, one of the things that I always recommend, I have recommended for years, is one of the ways we cure this thing, there's a couple things. One is change the ask. Change what you're asking for. Change the language. This is what uh, Jim's book is about, along with Dan. And, uh, and Jim and Dan have written in this book about language and the power of language and how people, what, the language you use and how precise you are in that language and what it means is all quite important to this. Language. So repent of your sins. Okay, that's the first thing. Now you see, it's not good news if it's only a declaration and there's no, no response. Now, to respond to the gospel, you need the Holy Spirit. So we're not talking here about any human effort or any human insight or any kind of understanding of it apart from the Holy Spirit of God illuminating our mind, convicting us of sin, righteousness, or the judgment. I mean, that's all part of it. All right, so repent of your sins. And when you when you get in a service, let's say, you're, and I, I read an article, I was going to read an article, I didn't read the article, uh, but I'm going to read the article, maybe by the end of more, tomorrow, by, there's... Uh, and the article is about why we should bring back altar calls. Now, just about the time you get rid of them, people want to bring them back. Okay, but maybe they're talking about the fact that you know, if you're not if you're not ready to turn away from your old way of life and walk away from it, don't come forward, don't pray the prayer, don't sign the the promise of faith, don't do any of that stuff, don't do any of our ritual. We don't want to baptize you. We don't want to bless you. We don't want to do any of that kind of stuff because that's a bad, bad start because that makes you a fake Christian because you can't make yourself a Christian. Yeah. You can't make yourself a Christian. There's not one person in the world who ever became, a, who ever became fully convinced they were a <laughs> sinner by being told. You, are, you come to that conclusion by the Holy Spirit. So repent of your sins. Believe the good news. Now this whole argument, and I'm just going to—I don't—I am hurrying because we have some things to do here. But faith, belief, trust—these words in the New Testament. Uh, the primary property of faith is to act. There's mystery of faith. There's mystery in it. It's supernatural, but its primary property is to act. And if you don't act, I think we have reason to believe that this is what James is talking about in the second chapter, is that if you don't act, it's not faith. It's not saving faith. It's intellectual assent. It could be something else. So repent of your sins. Believe the good news. Follow me. And this last one, this is where people start saying, well, you're teaching works righteousness, you know, that kind of stuff. And again, if you don't get pushback, you're not being clear. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to get pushback. But following me, this essentially means that I get my legs moving. You know, I'm following Jesus. I'm learning from him. I'm becoming his disciple. And when do you become a disciple? When you believe. And when you believe, how do you know you're believing? Oh, you find yourself, I'm walking, I'm following, I'm obeying, I'm doing it. All right. Now, what about all these other... So there's a gospel declaration, the gospel about Jesus. There's the gospel response, the gospel of Jesus. And it's a lot more full than that. That's why the gospels were written, to explain what the gospel of Jesus is. Now, finally, follow me. Um, how about all these other things that we talk about when it comes to salvation? All right, these other words. Forgiveness of sins. That's part of it. That's a benefit. That's a benefit. Reconcile to God. Another benefit. Adoption into the family. There's a benefit. Justified. You know, when people say, you know, it's a deal like the old saying, what do you do with a person who has been reborn spiritually? Well, you justify them. Okay. Uh, called to service. Baptized in the Spirit. Eternal life. Promises of God. 
sanctified, new creation. There you go. Those are gospel benefits. So then again, you got the gospel declaration, you got the gospel response, you have the gospel benefits, but the, the, the core of it is essentially what are you going to do when confronted with the claims of Jesus Christ? And when he, what he speaks to you is that gospel of Jesus that really is the one that lives in you. That it, it's where the rubber meets the road, as we say. All right. So what I want to do now is give time for you to ask some questions. And then we have some stuff we're going to give away. So if you have a question, please ask it. Yes. So do you have a simple like definition of gospel that you would like easily communicate to someone? We have a we have a definition in the in the book, uh, but this is part of the Bonhoeffer project. We never tell you what to do. You have to figure it out for yourselves. Right? Okay. You have to wrestle with it. You got to yes. like a you got to worry over it like a dog does with a bone, man. You just got to roll around and <laughs> work on it. And so that's. That's part of the assignment, wrestling with it. Because if you, if you don't wrestle with it, it doesn't become part of you, you don't own it. Right. You don't own it. And then how are you going to infect other people with it? That's the other issue. So I get to come back next year with my, <laughs> I got to come back next year with my definition. Yeah, well, if, you're in a, if you choose to be in a, a project, you know, one of the Bonhoeffer projects, which is a, a year-long uh, cohort, then that's how you go through the process. Because you know what happened? Here's, here, I'll just tell you. The chances that any of you will actually do anything about anything I just said is eh, 10%. Unless you really mean it. You're really hungry for it. And God puts it in your heart. Then you'll get in the cohort. Or you'll find a way. So that's my answer. <laughs> I don't have to be nice anymore. <laughs> okay, another question that I can really rip on. Oh, no, no, actually, you know, it's, uh, you guys, anybody read uh, Jordan Peterson's message to the church? Sure. Oh, yeah. He said, raise it high, you know, challenge people, say it's going to cost you something. I mean, that's what Jesus said. Yes. Is there a particular time in discipling someone who is completely unchurched, doesn't know God, that you would think now is the time to tell them about the cost? I mean, use the parable of Jesus that, you know, a man's not going to build a tower, he's not going to yeah. go against an enemy unless he's counted the cost. It, is that, is that, in your first lesson, is that maybe in a, at a Follow-up, is that something at the end? Well, I understand how deeply ingrained it is in us to kind of take it easy on people at first. I know. But I, I, I believe that actually right out, right up front, uh, what I mean... Well, I've already missed that now by five yeah. weeks. Okay, well, <laughs> it's not too late. It's not too late. You can catch up. Uh, Luke 9, you know, in Luke, well, Luke 14. You know, have you ever thought of Luke 14, 25 through 35? You know, you've Christ before self, Christ before uh, family, Christ before possessions and so on. That that's an evangelistic uh, passage because it says he turned and he said to everyone. He, he, you know, you don't, you don't keep that passage to go up in the mountains on a retreat with just the, the guerrilla warfare types, you know, that you have in your church and say, okay, guys, we can't tell anybody about this because it might scare them, but here is the real story. Now tell them the real story up front. That's the reason so often that we, when we set the bar so low and uh, we make it so unappealing really, uh, as far as the adventure it can be in your life, so on that we just, and the person does it, I just, you know, it's religion, you know, I just go to church and, and uh, maybe if I'm really good for a while I can be an usher. <laughs> <laughs> Was that clear? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, it's nothing against ushers. Yes, sir. Could you talk about the 
about the, the global impact of the Bonhoeffer Project? Yes, I can. <laughs> can I talk about the global impact of the Bonhoeffer Project? The global impact is that uh, we are in a number of countries, and we have some of the best work we're doing is in other countries, like Argentina, Brazil, uh, Cameroon. Uh, Felix from Cameroon's right here in the front row in the red sweater. Uh, he can, he can. I'm sure he'll be glad to tell you about it. Uh, and God is working in around the world. Uh, we've had many people from, like we had a few people from Australia, New Zealand back in the day. And uh, all we nearly need is the way it grows is somebody somewhere around the world. Uh, they they get involved, and I remember. A guy one time asked me, he says, well, who do you have over here in, uh, in England? And I said, you. <laughs> That's how it starts. You. And, uh, we'll, and so we have people like that all over the world. And, it, it's so it, and I think that the, uh, the tougher ground is right here in the United States uh, because we're so spoiled and, and uh, such. But I think that one of the good signs here in the United States is that uh, I think for the first time in my lifetime that the church is really starting to get afraid. Afraid in the sense, in a good sense. Like, oh, maybe we should get with the program. Maybe we should get serious about this thing because it looks pretty serious. When we see some of the foolish things, uh, the destructive things, and when you think you have cultural Marxism, you know, kind of trying to strangle the church to death. And uh, so many forces and levers of power and the long march through our institutions uh, that has put, a, put biblical living in jeopardy. And, uh, and that's one of the things about Americans. You know, and one of the things about World War II, for example, was that we had, we were like 25th in the world in military strength and that we had to be threatened attacked before we got serious. And, uh, and it's just a human nature. Yes? Uh, looking at that slide where you had the American Gospels. Yeah. Let's say that you find someone that's motivated to become disciple, mm -hmm. and you meet with them regularly, and you're going through the material you're going through. But they come from one of those other Gospels. And they're learning, they're growing, but they're holding on to aspects of one of those other Gospels, and they're not letting it go. And you can't convince them otherwise so far. And you don't feel comfortable setting loose to disciple someone else. Where's the cutoff point? Well, I think the answer to that is uh, it depends on the person and the context. But I think in general, you start working with somebody and you focus on what really matters. You know, are they people who are interacting with God through the word and prayer? Are there people who are bearing fruit and fruit that remains? Are they people who are, uh, have joy and are loving as Christ loved? And you can actually measure that from the scriptures and focus on those kinds of things instead of being overly doctrinaire. And a lot of that stuff will fall by the wayside because you see what happens. I work with this group of people at Northwestern Mutual, and I work with the field agents, the guys who sell the insurance, for men and women. And, and uh, they're Catholics, there's Lutherans, there's Pentecostals, there's a bit of everything. You know, Baptist, Reformed, Wesleyan. And I work with them on a regular basis, and we focus just on what it means to be a follower of Christ. And then all this other stuff is extraneous, because essentially we, these guys have such authority and influence in their, in their domain that we have thousands of people that show up for events. And uh, we, we have regional events and Bible studies and a network that is unofficial, but it's within the Northwestern Mutual family. 
And uh, so that's an example of the reason it works, the reason everybody keeps coming back for the study on the Gospel of John or whatever we're studying at the moment is because we're doing something together. So you get them on a mission. You get focused on what Christ is calling them to and to do those kinds of things and all this other stuff falls by the wayside uh, most of the time. And they'll say, oh, it's really important to me to believe X, Y, or Z. Uh, later on, it becomes less important. That's my advice. That's like Bill. I'm a local pastor in Georgia, which is south of Atlanta, and one of the things when I went through the first cohort that I was in, when I went through the cohort I was in, I was challenged with by Bill and by my cohort leader is, as a pastor, what am I inviting people to? Bill mentioned that a few minutes ago. I'm in the Southern Baptist tribe, and our, our tribe has always been about inviting people to a decision. And I started to shift as I went through the Bonhoeffer Project to invite people to follow Jesus. Amen. And it's changed our church. People think about their salvation differently. They think about how they live differently. They think about their vocation now as a Christ follower differently, right? So that's what we do in the Bonhoeffer Project. What we do is we take leaders, whether you're in full-time ministry or we even have lay leaders, you have to have a context for ministry. This isn't your personal discipleship group, okay? We're training leaders to from what we call upstream to downstream, from the scriptures and the headwaters, upstream with the gospel, and take you downstream, and we don't tell you what to do. We help you craft a disciple-making plan for your context, okay? Now, you may say, we already have one in place. Great. How many people have gone through cohorts, and we've helped them tweak that plan as they've been formed through this process, there's an alumni about to speak. Go. Yeah, I was going to say about the gospel. Yeah. I, I, when Bill was talking about that, my brother here there, how would you define the gospel? I'm a uh, alum of the cohort and uh, hadn't went through anything else, but it's changing our, our uh, church culture. The gospel is easy as this. This is my definition of our church is how we go off of it. The gospel of Jesus is this. The kingdom of God's at hand, and if there's a kingdom of God, they got to be a king to the kingdom. His name is Jesus. And Jesus did a few things for you. The king did a few things for you. He died for you, and he was risen for you. And having that knowledge, now you've got to respond to that, as Bill said. You've got to have a response, so you have to repent. That's what Jesus said, right? Repent of your sins. And then you've got to believe in the gospel. What gospel? There's a kingdom of God at hand. There's a king to the kingdom. He died. He rose for you. That seems simple. That's where we somewhat stop at, but we've got to follow. And that's where you're going right now. We've got that's to right. follow that gospel. That's right. Because we are saved in there you following go. Jesus. Plus. He's, he's speaking to us. That's it. Now, what do we do? Ten months in a cohort of six to ten leaders. Ten months. The first two sessions are on the gospel. Third one's on salvation. You say, okay, in this room, we probably have people from many different tribes, right? How does that work? Well, we try to avoid theological parsing within the context. We stick to primary things. Here's my example. I'm in the Baptist tribe. Mr. Greg, my friend over there, is in the Presbyterian tribe. He was in one of my cohorts. We had two Baptists, not including me, two Baptists, two Presbyterians. Two were preordained to be there. Two chose to be there, and we all ended up in the same <laughs> And we did 10 months together, and that boy just lifted me off the ground, giving me a big hug. Yeah. Okay? We can do this together as the body of Christ. And we help. We are formed individually. And we help form our churches through this process called the Bonhoeffer Project. And you come out of this thing with a plan ready to implement. We're introducing our coaching that comes after implementation and all that at this conference as well. We'll be talking about that in later sessions. So at our back here at our kind of fake booth that we're not selling anything at to get you to go to our real booth yeah. over there. Uh, it has all the information about the Bonhoeffer Project. If you're on leadership team work with the Bonhoeffer Project, raise your hand. Uh, all these people around the room, if you have questions, let us know. This is national leadership team, regional leaders. Uh, I'll, I'll put some specifics to what Bill said. We're in seven countries right now. We have over a 1,000 alumni. Um, we just launched last week in Brazil, uh, which we're really excited about. Uh, we're looking to launch in South Korea uh, very, very soon. Uh, we were about to launch in Russia. Pray for our brother in St. Petersburg right now. Um, and we have, uh, we are in several Spanish-speaking countries as well. We're in the UK as well, and obviously here in the US. So I want to encourage you, if you have questions about international stuff, talk to Dr. Felix right here on the front row. Talk to Miss Cindy. Where's, uh, where's Kenny? Kenny's over here. He's our international director. Um, so talk with him about international stuff. 
Um, let me just give you one quick plug, and then we are going to do the drawings, and we're going to give some stuff away, okay? Um, Bill mentioned Dan Lights, who's our present, new president and CEO of the Bonhoeffer Project, and myself have written a new book called The Language of Disciple Making, saying what we mean about discipleship. Tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, tough session to get to, because it's tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. What what's an incentive? So uh, the incentive... Donuts or something? Huh? Are you doing donuts or anything? I'm going to dance. You're going to dance? Okay. <laughs> yeah. You want to be here for that? He's yeah. a Baptist. I think we'll go. <laughs> I'm not going to sing any song I sing. It's called Benediction. People just leave. Right? No, we're going to talk about language tomorrow morning. And we're going to talk about the necessity of language in our disciple-making process. It's way upstream. It's way upstream. It's with the headwaters and the gospel, and we start to plug that in so that we make what we desire to make as far as disciples for Jesus downstream. Challenge you to be a part of that tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. I'm waking up early. You wake up early. Okay? Donuts, JT, on us. Do it? Donuts are on us. You're bringing donuts. Leo. Leo. Hey, all right. All right. Leo's bringing donuts. Thank you all for being here today. See you at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning for donuts. God bless you. Have a great day. That was some fantastic stuff from Bill Hull and the Bonhoeffer Project. I hope that you enjoyed that. Um, I laughed out loud when Bill said, you know, I don't have to be nice anymore. And I just appreciate the fact that he's just given it to us straight. You know, all throughout my life, the people that I've appreciated most are the ones that were straight shooters. They didn't sugarcoat it. They were like, hey, you're not good enough, but I believe that you can get better, but you got to get better. And I just love this whole mentality of we got to have higher callings for the church and for the people that we're discipling, because it's it's game time now. In our country especially, it is game time. All right, y'all, thanks for listening to this episode. We have another Bonhoeffer episode coming up next. If you haven't already, I would love for you to click subscribe to this channel so that you know when we drop it. All right, y'all, enjoy the rest of your day. Bye.